Hello and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that spotlights individuals changing how data is used to drive more engaging data-driven experiences. I'm your host Ben Cicchetti and for this episode our Customer Success Director Max Tulu sat down with Dunstan Rickard, Advertising Sales Director at EFG, to discuss the incredibly exciting and immense world of gaming, the role of data privacy, trust, collaboration and much much more. Before I hand it over to Max and Dunstan, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button so you know when the latest episode of Identity Architects lands. But without any further delay, here's Max and Dunstan. Hi, my name is Max Tulieu, Director of Customer Success at Infosum, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dunstan Rickard from EFG. For anyone who doesn't know you, can you give us an intro to who you are, who EFG is, and what you do at the company. Cool, well, Max, first of all, good to see you. Thanks so much for inviting me to this. Um, it's actually quite exciting to be here. Um, I'm also, I feel like I'm a bit of a, an imposter because I'm in some fairly illustrious company. Um, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts now and the ones that really resonated with me were Mary Keen Dawson's and uh, Keith Petrie's and uh, Lara Islands, who they, all came from very different perspectives, but it was really inspirational. So uh, I really hope I don't let the side down on this one. But um, anyway, I'm I'm Dunstan Rickard, and I'm the Advertising Sales Director for EFG. Um, I joined the business back in January of this year after 13 years of uh, co-owning and operating my own advertising sales agency called Adverse Media. And uh, it was really uh, the the compelling opportunity of what was the original reason why I joined EFG, which was Face It, that really drew me to the business. Um, and what drew me to that was all the learnings I got from um, Adverse Media, where it, I started seeing the direction of travel in terms of how businesses were operating, how marketers were operating, how data was becoming king, and how important that was. Um, and Face It had a particularly compelling opportunity, um, which I'm now part of. And um, it, effectively, EFG is the product of a union of two businesses that were both part of, but also renowned in the gaming and esports industry. Uh, but they very much operated in very different ways within it. Um, but this union effectively means that we've been able to connect the virtual with the physical and vice versa. And uh, in doing so, we now have an ecosystem that um, really helps the gaming communities to thrive by helping them create worlds that go beyond gameplay, that unites fans, um, that the creators and all of those people that are fanatical about esports and, and fanatical about gaming. And it's a truly exciting opportunity. So effectively, my role has slightly expanded within the company now. It's no longer just about FaceIt as a platform. And now I'm focusing on how I, I can build a truly sophisticated advertising platform that marries all of our first party data uh, into our platforms, but also how do I use that to uh, empower my reach through social media and the social media channels that we own and operate. But also, how do we then go beyond that through further audience partnerships or audience extensions or data partnerships? The business is very much at the beginning of this journey, but it really does know it's an incredibly compelling opportunity. And uh, so we're laser focused now on building this, I guess, unique tech stack uh, that will really help us differentiate within the market. For those for for those listening to us who are not necessarily aware or emerge in the sort of like gaming industry, would you be able to give us a little bit more detail about who ESL and Faceit are and the kind of recent um, events that happened around those businesses? Sure. So yeah, I, I spoke about this union. In effect, it's it's the merger of two companies one being ESL and the other one being FACEIT. And we've effectively become the ESL FACEIT group or EFG. Uh, my understanding was the business is, have always sought ways to collaborate and our co-CEOs clearly got very serious about this a few years ago. And that very led to uh, the announcement of our merger and acquisition 
by the Savvy Gaming Group in Q2 of this year. So what this merger has effectively given us is three distinct brands. Uh, one being Faceit, which I touched upon, and Faceit is a, a competitive gaming platform with 27 million strong community of players that have come to face it because it's a safe place to play with like-minded gamers of all levels, be it that you want to compete socially, semi-professionally or professionally, but to do so in an environment that's safe, where you're not exposed to cheating and uh, that you can do it at any time and at any level and helps you connect to the players you want to connect to. So we've created this incredible community. So that's our digital connection. That's our digital platform. And then ESL is where we go into the realms of the physical. And uh, ESL are, are at the pinnacle of esports. Um, it's where gamers and professional gamers from all over the world congregate or get together to compete globally at some of the most prestigious um, tournaments in the world. Um, and ESL creates and organizes these at scale. Um, I've never seen anything like it before. It's truly epic. And actually, I witnessed it firsthand uh, for the first time when I was invited to the Intel Extreme Masters in Cologne, which is described as the cathedral of CSGO. And CSGO is the game that these people play, or these teams play, should I say. And uh, I've never seen anything like it. It was an arena packed with tens of thousands of people all cheer wearing the, the merchandise of the team that they support and the players that they support that are cheering like you would cheer for your team in a more traditional sports setting that are there for a long period of time because it's over 10 days. And there's a significant dollar value prize money at the end of this journey for the, uh, for the teams as well. So it was really seeing that all taking shape, which really helped me understand uh that world helped me see how our gamers aren't just interested in gaming digitally they are about this community and they like getting together to share in those experiences and it which goes to explain in no small way why partners such as intel uh, dhl mercedes-benz um, monster etc all want to be part of that journey so that's um I guess the professional esports physical uh, environment that we have. And then we have another business called Dreamhack. And the best way I can describe Dreamhack is it's the festival of gaming that is again global. It goes around the world and it's where pa passionate uh, gamers and esports fanatics congregate to get together to meet their favorite players and influencers. And the players and influencers go there because this is the best way for them to really engage with their fans. Uh, where there's live music, where brands come to bring in their latest games or latest products. And uh, I really I can't do it enough justice because I've not seen this live. And I'm, I'm, I've been invited to go and see one fairly soon. So I'm actually quite excited to see this. But it's, um, it, it's again, it's, it's where that physical... Uh, world is created within this digital sphere that we're in, which is gaming. So all three businesses operate very differently. But apart from the industry that it's in, it has one great commonality that unifies all three businesses together. And that's the first party uh, data that these businesses generate. And I, I guess the I have an objective now, which is to build uh, an advertising platform for this business that is not only best in class, but that really does bridge our digital footprints across our platforms, our social media channels. And that's all done through the empowerment of first party data, but also not only using that first party data to empower active buying decisions for advertisers and things like that, but actually also helps us understand our community better so that we can develop even better products. and. Um, so it's, I guess it's the marrying of that data that enables us to generate advertising dollar, but also generate value for our users. So I guess the key from a commercial perspective is then how do we make this asset as tradable as possible for the brands that will wish to want to buy it? So we're now navigating the 
uh, I wouldn't say choppy, but let's say interesting waters of uh, advertising and everything that's in between that. So we're building our programmatic strategy. How do we use our header bidder to best uh, inform decisions on inventory, et cetera. So it's um, interesting times and rather exciting. That's amazing. We're seeing quite a bit of traction uh, ourselves in the gaming space, and we're really excited to be working with EFG and to be able to partner with you within the space. Um, talking about gaming then, and being a gamer myself, or I should say retired gamer from 10 plus years ago, I'd love to know what, what's your earliest memory and relationship to gaming for yourself? So you were a gamer 10 years ago. What were you gaming? And were you gaming online or on your own? So it was mainly online, either through friends that I knew in real life or not. A lot of uh, Counter-Strike, not CSGO, three, four versions back. So a few a few different games, but that was kind of like one of the main ones. Cool. Exciting. And you do, do you still play now or have you completely stopped your too grown up for that sort of thing? Just casually playing a bit of Warzone with some of my friends that... Um, is kind of something that started throughout COVID. So not being able to see each other face to face, we'd mm. uh, meet up online and play sort of like every Friday or so for a couple of hours. Uh, but that sort of died down since um, things have reopened a little bit. Mm. Might well, as well you... come back in the winter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's interesting because um, my, my oldest memory of gaming actually goes back to when I was uh, sort of nine or 10 years old, which was, you know, sadly... A few decades ago now um and i i was introduced to gaming by a friend of mine who had a commodore 64 and when he produced a tape and he put it into this tape deck and all these funny buzzing whirring sounds were made and suddenly up on the television came a game and i remember the game that absolutely um triggered my imagination was uh the ghostbusters game and also another game called Mr. Robot. And they were two very different um, gaming experiences. And it was amazing to think in such a limited framework that those games could provide just how big a narrative you could create and how immersive it could be. So though the, the visuals were not as striking as what you see now, actual gameplay and immersion was already really center stage when it came to creating games. And... Um, so that was my sort of early uh, introduction to it. And then I, I guess I begged my parents to get me one more on Christmas and, and they bought it for me, which was very kind of them. And then if we fast forward to um, a few years later, I think I got really into gaming when the PS1 was created. And um, I'm a sad petrol head uh, when it, and I adore my cars. And uh, when I was introduced to Gran Turismo 2. On I thought PS1, that was coming. Uh, I I couldn't believe my luck. Uh, effectively, I could have my virtual garage of all the cars that I would dream to own, and I could do all sorts of things with them. And I got rewarded for driving, which uh, for a petrol head, you can't ask for anything more than that. It also got me into, I guess it made me realize that ga gaming wasn't just a, 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 you know, a, a casual pastime that you would dip in and out to. You actually became, um, some say much, let's say you became addicted to it. Others would say that actually it really enticed you and it made you want to, to better yourself within that environment and yeah, and uh, do better because you got rewarded at the end, be it through being, in the case of Gran Turismo, you could upgrade your car or whatever, get more racetracks, etc. But also I started, it sort of made me realize that in amongst that, there was competition between me and my mates. So suddenly I was playing with friends and even though it was very difficult to do multiple device playing at that time, we would take it in turns and we would all compete who could get the fastest lap, etc. And it was that thing that made me realize that it was um, becoming a very competitive environment. But also the collaborative side of things was quite interesting. Um, I also had a SNES and I had a game called Zelda. And that was very collaborative because you do that with friends and figure things out. And you couldn't look up for instructions online or cheats or hacks. You needed to buy a book to go with it. And suddenly that was in a collaborative adventure, completely different gaming experience with completely different gaming results. But it all came around to that, I guess, that collaborative nature, that competitive nature. And you're already building a community. So even if your friends are coming around for a, a, a cup of coffee in a game, 
they're coming around they're becoming part of your gaming community and what we've just got now is that that's just amplified across the world through the connectivity of the internet so it's uh, exciting it's amazing how it's evolved isn't it and how how companies like face it and others are facilitating people meeting and being able to play together collaborate and so on how how do you see that being um interacted with by the current generations or let's say younger generations maybe in your family for example do you see them having a similar relationship to gaming or is it different uh, it's different in the sense that um well let me let me put it a different way because actually you strike on something that's quite interesting especially to do with families so i have two teenagers both of which have very different relationships with gaming my son uh, most of his friends are online and he's met through the gaming, uh, his game of choice, the one that he prefers. And uh, his particular interests lie, for, which is slightly strange for a, for an 18-year-old. He's still hugely passionate about Minecraft, but also he's hugely into train simulators. And he connects and col uh, collaborates with his friends on there. And actually during lockdown, it was his way of making sure that he stayed connected to his world and connected to his friend. Um friends and uh, uh, he is also on the autistic spectrum so uh, gaming for him is a way of having social interaction where normal traditional social interaction which would come naturally to those people who are atypical or not on the spectrum would find easy he would find difficult he can't go to the pub and go for a pint and meet people it's simply not something he's comfortable in doing but meeting people he's never met before online, getting to know them online through the gaming experience for him is how he formulates his friendships. And we'll probably touch on, on the security side of things much later. But for me, that was the way my son could connect to the world and connect to his peers and create friendship groups. For my daughter, it's very different. She's very gregarious, outgoing. She's 16, so she terrifies the hell out of me. And uh, she is at that stage where it's all, you know, if we could unlock her brain and have a look inside, I swear it would just be glow sticks and whistles and lots of dance music playing. But she games. and But how she games is she dips in and out. She doesn't spend very much time gaming. And she often games doing funny things with her friends. And it'll be either The Sims or something like that. But it's never long term. It's never the kind of commitment of two or three hours worth of gaming. It's the commitment of five or ten minutes of gaming so what's interesting to me about the gaming e ecosystem and, uh, and how it's changed is it's a bit like everything anything to do with the entertainment industry it finds its niches within those people that want to engage with it in the way they wish to and what is fabulous about gaming is it actually unlocks the power to enable you to communicate how you wish to communicate within your peer group and um, that's the power for me mm -hmm. i don't know if that's actually answered your question though yeah yeah it does it does um, and, and I think we see people interacting and younger uh, people interacting with gaming in, in a more sort of like immersed way, I think, and continuing to uh, develop relationship for it, which I think is amazing based on them doing it on, uh, on their own terms, I guess. If we take it back to advertising and your career so far, do you remember what your first job was within that industry? What got you? Um, started within advertising? Yes, yeah, so you'll be surprised to hear. I don't think there are many people that said when they left university, the first thing they wanted to do was go and flog some classified advertising space in a B2B publication. But that's precisely what I did. And it wasn't out of anything other than the need for money uh, to pay for myself, but also I was at a crossroads in terms of what I wanted to do for a career. Um, I was fighting the creative urge to, to remain a musician and uh, and I was close to go pushing on ahead with my career as, as a session musician. Um, or was I going to be grown up an adult and go, actually, I need to find, forge a career somewhere else. So my early memories of, of advertising uh, in terms of my first job was flogging classified advertising space for a B2B publisher called Centaur. Uh, my boss was a guy called James Bennett, and he now owns Television Magazine. He bought it off Central uh, Publishing, and uh, it was a very old school environment. You had to uh, 
hit your call quota every day. I think my call quota had to be 80 or 90 phone calls a day, of which I needed to ensure that at least 20 of them were known as effective phone calls. In other words, you've spoken to a decision maker and some sort of outcome has happened from that. And I also had to hit sales targets and all those uh, other things. And the interesting thing about that environment was it taught me all the core skills of how to sell. I mean, my first interview, James told me to sell him a pencil. And, uh, you know, I was straight out of university and I, and I thought, crikey, where do I start from here? And of course, you then learn how to manipulate the sales story so that you eventually persuade somebody that absolutely, not only do they need a pencil, but the very pencil you've got in front of you is the one they absolutely must have. And um, I guess it was an interesting time because, um, uh, you know, it was the early, uh, it's early to mid 90s. I was talking a lot to media planners and buyers, old school media planners and buyers who were really involved in the media mix, not just specializing in one particular avenue, but they looked at the whole media mix in terms of what, what the objectives were for their client. And um, it taught you how to negotiate um, and negotiate hard, but also using techniques that we still use today, data and information such as TGI and how you would fight against your competitors. Um, so that you use the data to prove that your product was better than theirs. Um, and I guess that sort of went all the way through until my far, my last job in in traditional media, magazines and things like that, whereas I was at British Airways Media uh, and I was group advertising sales manager. And my boss was a guy called Alistair Parks, known as Lurch because he was six foot seven and built like a rugby player because he was a rugby player. And... Um, he taught me so much more in terms of the sort of media mix and sales process and stuff like that. But that's when I was dealing with things like sales ledgers, having to write everything down. I didn't have a computer. Uh, I had to do a thing called flat planning where I had to, with the editor, I had a fabulous editor called Sandra Harris at Business uh, Life. And she was brilliant. Um, and I would sit with her every week, every Monday, and she'd go, how much more advertising can you sell for me so I can put more articles in? into the magazine and we'd hatch plans and we would set up the the, the magazine so that we knew where the ads would be where the con uh, the, uh, the articles would be and then eventually you'd get it to print and off it would go and everything was always last 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 minute and there was always a deadline you're always breaking the deadline and going to print at the very last moment plus smoking unbelievable amount of cigarettes at your desk which obviously i don't do now but at the time it was pretty horrific and i'm amazed we're all still alive but uh, yeah, that was my uh, that was my first job in advertising. How it trans transitioned into digital media. Quite an early adopter of the usage of uh, data for media planning, then. Yeah. And um, quite a lot of things have changed and evolved since then. Obviously, no more smoking in offices these days, and still quite a lot of uh, usage of data and an increasing usage of data within media. Um, within the advertising industry, where quite obsessed with the idea of identity, identifying customers across devices and being able to reach them with the right message at the right time. How do you tend to explain your current role and how you operate within that industry to, let's say, your children, for example, or people that are not part of the industry that you meet at family events and things like that? So uh, basically, how do I explain what I do to friends and family? Yes. I, I don't. I basically say I do very little and I'll leave it there because if not, even my wife hasn't got a clue what I do. But for the purposes of this, of the podcast, I guess the way I would describe it is this. Um, I would jokingly say I make everybody's life miserable online because I put adverts in front of them that may they may or may not want to see. But actually what I really do is I try and use the power of the product and the uh, the community I have to introduce this community to advertisers who are relevant to that community and to effectively drive value, not only for them, but for the business. And how I use data is to help enhance that and enrich it and effectively give media owners the opportunity, um, sorry, not media owners, but media uh, planners and buyers and clients and agencies to really make an informed decision about how they engage with my my users. And that could be anywhere from my previous life of looking after Heathrow's websites and stuff like that through to um, 
you know, face it and what we're planning to do with uh, the ESL digital properties as well. Um, so that's really it, is that I look at in, in, interconnecting a digital footprint to the right people at the right time with the right advertising message. It's a great explanation. And you're obviously very busy at the moment, both with what's going on with FaceIt, the merger with ESL and developing the advertising uh, section of the business. What keeps you up at night? Is there anything that worries you or that keeps coming back to your, to your mind? Um, apart from my fellow band members who keep insisting on trying out new scales and trying to make me do insanely complicated time signatures, I guess that the, the, from a business perspective, what keeps me up is actually a, a mixture of trepidation and excitement. Um, we're at the beginning, effectively, business is at the beginning of its advertising journey. It's fully understood how it can uh, create really powerful uh, commercial partnerships, uh, be it through the platform or ESL, who are the kings of the brand partnership experience. If you could see what they do with the likes of Intel and DHL and Mercedes and Monster in terms of their kind of uh, their, their, their complete interaction with that audience, it is breathtaking. Um, but from a, a, an advertising perspective, especially a digital advertising perspective, it, it's at the beginning of the journey. And I think what uh, I have many stakeholders that I need to on board with my thinking. Uh, they want to protect their most valuable asset, which is totally understandable. And that's either the product, the partners that they already have in place, a collaboration of all the users, etc. And whenever you put a a commercial offering in front of them, that may disrupt, potentially disrupt that relationship. Of course, they're going to want to ensure that it doesn't disrupt things so badly, or in fact adds value. So it's effectively ensuring that I'm I'm kind of trying to navigate my way through so that I ensure that whatever I'm contributing to the business be it short-term, medium-term, or long-term, is that actually it fulfills the landscape ambitions of EFG um, and also gives a meaningful revenue stream on behalf of the business that actually is a, of value to the end user at the end. Uh, you can throw as much advertising as you like to people, but if it's meaningless, it doesn't add anything. You'll either lose all your users or you'll lose all your advertisers. So, or horribly a combination of both. Um, so it's really ensuring that I, I manage those stakeholders. I bring them on board the journey, but also I listen to them. I understand their concerns and their worries and, their, and to ensure that I either plan for that. If I don't agree with that, how do I, how do I ensure that I, I get my perspective put across and that, that they see it how I see it, or if they don't agree with me, that they help me understand exactly where they're coming from. Because if not, we can't make effective decisions. And uh, the whole merger, you know, there's a lot of people involved. Plus, we've got um, Bain, who are consultants, who are one of the biggest consultants out there, who are helping us navigate this. So I'm also uh, being introduced to the world of consultants, having been, a, a, for want of a better phrase, an entrepreneur for the best part of 15 years of my life, running my own businesses. I've only ever had two or three people to ever worry about uh, in terms of you know, my ultimate decision-making powers. Here, I've got people below me and I've got people above me and it's managing those people below and above to ensure that we get the very best from it. That sounds like a lot of different stakeholders to, to bring on board and to bring on to that journey with you that you're definitely uh, going on. Um, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into uh, some questions around identity and what specifically FACE and EFG are, are doing around that. But before I go there, Final sort of quick fire question. If there was one song that was a soundtrack to your life, what would that one song be? Um, this was actually one of the hardest questions for me to answer. Um, as I think I bragged about, uh, I'm a passionate musician and uh, I love my music and I have a, uh, a very wide spectrum of uh, musical passions that's starts a classical music, makes its way through rock, funk, neo-soul, 
ends somewhere within jazz and then culminates in the world of hip hop. So as you can imagine, it's a bit, uh, a bit of a mess. Plus I like physical media. So I have two, according to my wife, far too many CDs and far too many, uh, vinyl records in fact apparently it drives her mad i can't understand it i think they look fabulous but she's of the opinion that it's awful so i really try to think about well what song if it, what song or what album would i not be able to part with that actually is this is the music that that makes me you know happy and actually best represents how i feel about things uh and I came across a, a, a really f- fantastic musician called Thomas Dolby, who was also a tech entrepreneur. He had Beatnik and the polyphonic sounds that come from your phone and your computer is all down to him. He created the technology to be able to do that. So when he hung up his musical gloves, he put on his technical gloves and then he went boxing into the world of digital uh, media in uh, Silicon Valley and created Beatnik and uh, has become a multimillionaire because of this. And the fact that the Nokia phone could play that tune and not in a binary tone, but with a full polyphonic sound and how your phone operates today musically is down to him. And that, so it's quite a nice segue into one of his last albums, which is an album called Aliens Ate My Buick. And the song, well, there are two. Uh, one's called Pop Culture, which is all about the uh, the obsession with uh, pulp, uh, um, nonsensical nonsense within media. And that's from the perspective of a man in 1989. And the other one is the ability to swing. And it's just because he's a great dance number. So he's one of the finest songwriters and lyricists on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. Just happened to then forge a career within digital media that was even more impressive. Sounds great. I'm going to have to give it a listen. Can't say I've, I've heard of it just yet. Not many people have. No. <laughs> so... Taking the conversation back to um, identity and sort of like the Identity Architect podcast that we're um, in today, as we see digital evolving and identity specifically within it, what do you think is the future solution specifically for gaming companies, but then the industry more widely? It's... This was a question that actually... um, I found really interesting to try and answer and uh, to get to the answer, I kind of had to go to the beginning of where is the gaming industry at and what is it trying to do and where could it go? Um, gaming has always kind of tested the boundaries when it comes to uh, monetization and some with great success, some with not great success at all. And that could be anything for a pay to play model uh, to in-game advertising, to more traditional revenue streams and currencies and things like that. But it's always been innovative. Um, but I think what what the gaming industry and you could say the industry as a whole um, that often ambition has outweighed uh, the stakeholder appetite and also the user acceptance. So effectively, the future is an ever moving feast, and it's quite difficult to really work out where you go with that. We often pit um, the future with scale. We put those two together. With, as we progress, we look to scale and none so more than our recent political troubles and the word growth has been thrown around so heavily. Um, so it's a word that's often overused and especially when it comes to data as well. Um, and actually from that perspective, it can be completely misunderstood as to what value it can actually drive. Um, but if I was to go back to the gaming industry and what has it done successfully and what could it do uh, with that success in the future, it's always been good at building new economies and currencies, um, things like skins, NFTs, um, even our own business face it points, which is the nectar for our players. It's uh, it's driven by the personalization of the experience and the personalization of that individual. And actually, their online personas are very, very different to their physical and real personas or real personas in inverted commas. But actually, that community and that... Um, value and those currencies are actual bragging rights within the gaming community as well look how good i am look how many points i've got we even do it business people do it with their air miles how many air miles have you got it all becomes a bragging right um or and through that bragging right you create perceived value so i guess what i'm trying to say is 
in all honesty, the future is going to be defined by what we're going to be able to brag about and how are we going to be able to own it. Um, so from my view, I think how how the industry could shape itself to really differentiate would be to continue down this consented personalization path, but understand that the world of the virtual and the physical are very, very different. And actually, the future for me is bridging those two together, getting those those virtual identities and those real identities and getting them to match together so that you really have a clear understanding of who, the, who your users are. Um, because they're often very, very different. And what you expect express from a game data perspective versus what you express from a consumer data behavior are two very, very different things. Is that something that often comes up when you're in conversations with agencies or brands who are looking to plan campaigns who are used to buying from more at a like traditional media outlets in comparison to gaming companies? I think the biggest, the, the, the I think the, the advertising in, industry and marketers in general have all sort of decided that gaming is where it's at. They just don't quite know why yet. So we need to tell them why. So they already accept that the, this is powerful. There's lots of people gaming. It's bigger than ever before. It's bigger than the film industry and music industry combined. But they go, yeah, I've got to be in gaming. Why? How? How do I do it? What am I trying to do within that community? Do I actually understand it? Do I understand that community and do I understand that I can't just force myself in and go, my brand's brilliant. I've got to have a long-term relationship with that user. Um, so from an agency perspective, it's about education. We're actually educating the market right now. They know that they want to be part of it. Um, what we're trying to tell them is be part of it, but you've got to be um, you've got to be along for the ride and you've got to really engage. And, and in fact, I guess that segues nicely into the different tranches that we're building um, in our advertising piece to ensure that we are delivering that experience for the advertiser that actually matches what the user is getting from our platform, um, which is why first-party data is, has become one of the core elements of what we're, what we're delivering for our, our advertising piece. And first-party data being an integral part of marketing strategies of today and tomorrow, like you just said, what three things would you recommend every brand advertiser or maybe even publisher does right now to prepare for the future so there's i guess there's three things i would say to anybody that's going into this into this is um always have the betterment of the experience in mind be it from an advertising experience or a user experience so agree why you're doing it why do you want to do first-party data? Why do you want to have ads on your platform? Um, what is it that you actually wanted to achieve? Now, of course, everyone's going to say, I want it to generate revenue, but there's so much more to it than that. Anybody can generate revenue through advertising. What do you want the advertising to actually do for the user experience? Um, set your boundaries. What are you prepared to do and not do? And that is, again, through um, advertising itself who you're going to allow on there, who you're going to not allow on there, but also from your first party data, as I'll, I think we'll probably get on to later, is they're the crown jewels. What are you going to allow people to, what boundaries are you going to set with your data? Um, and that's, you know, the data itself is defined by what's consented and not consented. But actually, you as the custodian of that data have, if you've got consent to use it, you then have the obligation to ensure that whatever you do with that, that you don't do it badly and you don't give it to everyone and anyone, that there's a real collaboration between you and the advertiser when it comes to that first party data piece. Uh, so yeah, set your boundaries, test and learn. Always test, always learn, figure this out. You're not gonna get it right first time around. Um, then actually understand the results. Set your uh, Once you've set your boundaries and what you wanna do, set out what you wanna understand from it. So that's either, and from that perspective, let the data inform you, but not define you. Uh, let the tech empower you, but not take over from you. Actually, if we're advertising, allow the creativity to stand out. It's a creative medium. I think the danger with our industry is we've got so hooked on technology and data, we've forgotten that actually there's a message at the end of this. 
and we think the tech should do all the heavy lifting. It's there to support that decision. But if the advertising's rubbish, it's going to fail. The end user doesn't care a jot um, how the campaign was delivered. What was that real-time bidding? Was that... I can swear that that was a piece of programmatic that hit me right there. That was brilliant. And that was a private marketplace deal. So that's really clever. No, they they remember the advertising message. Um, that's what they remember. That's what triggers them into the interest. And I think we've, we're in danger of losing sight of that, both as um, advertisers, but also as publishers. We're becoming more and more fearful about how do we allow brands to really create an experience because obviously the brands want to be seen. And it's again about that careful partnership, partnering with the right people and agreeing your boundaries and agreeing why you're doing it. So the final piece is don't be scared to fail. I mean, obviously protect yourself. Don't do something stupid. But don't be, uh, don't be scared of um, not doing things necessarily 100% correctly. Because you need to be able to learn. That's part of that test and learn process. So I urge anybody, A, not to be scared of failure, but also don't um, create an atmosphere where failure is seen as no option because then you stop ingenuity and innovation. Because if every time you push the boundary, there is the danger of failure. And those are the three things I would say to anybody. You, you've, you've touched on the, the balance that you're trying to strike as a business between driving revenue, creating a new pipeline of revenue through advertising, but also making sure that the experience is still the best experience possible for consumers and that you're not oversharing their data and you're being responsible and making sure that you're using it in the right way. Why, why do you think that's so important? Why is that such a core principle within the EFG group? Uh, it's, it's multiple reasons. Obviously, the old adage is, is the consumer is always right. So you need to be mindful of what the consumer wants, what it's prepared to have from you or not have from you. Consumers are also fickle. They can love you one minute, leave the next. So if you don't love and nurture them, the reality is you would lose those users. So it's really important that, uh, that A, the user feels appreciated, but more importantly, that whatever you ask of them, that there's a reason for it, and then they're going to get something back from that. And that can be user experience through to, well, we're going to personalize the advertising, make sure you don't have stuff that you shouldn't be seeing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, I and that's really what's really important. But also, I think we're in a world where data privacy um, is a hot topic and we're more and more aware of it as consumers. And, uh, you know, a bit through... The, the abolition of the third party cookie, etc., uh, etc., et and I think the um, within that, whilst we're looking to prote uh, protect our users, is that we also need to work out how do we bridge the gap between the apathetic and the distrustful. So we have two extremes here uh, when it comes to identity and consent. Um, on one side, you have people like me who just go, "Yeah, whatever," or you have the other extreme, which are my children. And some people I know that that uh, work within our business who are young, who take one look at it and go, no, just no. They won't actually look inside the box and go, well, what does this actually mean? It's either yes, no. It's really binary. So we either care too much and to the point where we don't want to know, well, what are you doing? I just know I don't like it. I'm getting rid of it. To we don't care at all. So there's no kind of in between. And I think... Um, we as custodians of data and users and subscribers, etc., we need to help consumers understand the relationship uh, of their digital identity and how that relationship affects us and how it affects them. Um, and I guess that all comes down to trust, right? But trust is a lever that marketing has uh, and advertising has used as it's a dance as old as time. Um, and the industry itself inherently distrusts everyone around it, and to some extent, even itself. Um, and when it's self-policed, it's done things pretty badly. I mean, you know, from 
locally sourced object cookies, LSOs that you can't delete and cookie manipulation and all of that stuff. And when you get into a, a cycle of blame, after which, you know, client blames the agency, agency blames the publisher, and the publisher is left there with a the hot potato at the end going, well, hang on, I've only just done what you asked me to do. So it's um, it's a case of knowing that there's all this distrust. We've, and if we as an industry inherently distrust each other with this data, then how do we expect consumers to trust us with it as well? Um, and data are crown jewels, right? Um, and actually, we don't, though we call ourselves data owners, which legally on paper, that is what we are. We're not. We're custodians of data. The consumer has the right to say, I don't want you to have my information anymore. A, I want to see what you've got on me. But secondly, I don't want you to have it anymore. So you've got to delete it. So we don't really own it. We own it for a short amount of time. We're the custodians of that information. And our relationship with that user data is therefore sacred. Um, so we must also understand that if we're asking people to give us information about themselves that allows us to do things, we need to ensure that it really, really provides value back to the user. But also, and by giving value back to the user, that gives value back to the business. And that can be through better user experience, better engagement with our users. And I don't mean from a marketing perspective, just saying, hey, look, building the community better. Those players are at this level. So therefore, we're going to create a community night that is built around players at that level. And we're going to make it invite only, make it a bit exclusive. And we might do something cool at the end of that. There'll be some more interesting face it points or whatever. Through to, yeah, the binary aspect of uh, revenue generation, which is I'm going to put the right advert in front of you at the right time. So allow me to do that. If you don't want me to do that, that's cool. I'm fine with that. Um, and actually, I find the concept of consent and also ad blocking, things like that, wonderful. If you don't want me to go show you an ad and you don't want me to track you, then I'm better off not doing it because I'm only ever going to upset you. So therefore, you've made that decision. You are empowered to do it. And so therefore, you have every right to do it. And I'm better off serving to somebody who wants to hear from me. So I guess we're in that stage right now where we're trying to actually understand what we have in terms of data. Because everybody talks about data. And, you know, 10 years ago, everybody was banging on about big data. And when I asked somebody, what do you actually mean by big data? They all started staring, staring at their shoes because they didn't know. They just heard the word. Um, yeah, I just said, yeah, big data. I think every house should have one. You know, it, my wife swears by it, cleans the crockery brilliantly. Um, but I guess we've got to respect our user data, respect who they are, um, and respect the fact that they've trusted us to give that information. So therefore, we should give something back. We've also got to understand the real value of it. And that's a value to us, to them, and to our third parties, our advertisers. Um, I think we should also look at how do we think beyond what we have? What can this actually help us do for the future? How can we go beyond what we have based on what the data is telling us? So it effectively enriches the experience and empowers us to do a lot, lot more. Um, yeah, so hopefully, I, I don't know if I've gone off on a tangent there. No, that was a really good explanation. And it definitely sounds like the EFG group is taking consumers into account and really putting them first within that space before developing what you're mm. doing talking about the future in the gaming industry specifically what do you see as the currently and then the sort of like medium term the biggest opportunities for collaborations with companies like efg um i think when when you're looking at uh, collaboration, it's about actually what is the purpose of that collaboration. Um, also, what is it that we want to get from it? So, we've all got digital businesses with digital footprints all have first first party data, right? So, obviously, the the wonderful thing about Infosum, I'll do a bit of um, promotion for you guys, is that obviously you help us anonymize that, unify it, so that there's a universal data language at the end of this that enables some sort of matching or, uh, or non-matching within that. I think what, what we hope 
that these collaborations will do in, from a data level will do exactly what I was talking about, which is uh, how do we go beyond what we have right now? How do we go beyond uh, just flogging an ad? What is it that we can do with this that really is for the betterment of our businesses in terms of improving our products, improving what we do and improving our messaging, but also how do we learn from each other? If we have communities that are data communities, can we exchange safely without sharing, without giving anything away that gives us insights into various different communities that help us make better decisions better inf uh, and keep us even more informed about movement and change within the world? Um, and that's where I think collaboration is. And actually, that takes you away from that conversation about scale, um, because you may only have, say, a million people in your platform. But if all those million people are really interesting and do something different and have data sets that help you forge um, unique opportunities, get you better understandings of the world around you and how to better improve what you do, etc then actually the scale is not important. It was the value it brought to it. So I think that's the other thing is how do we make collaboration work? So it's not just about, I've got 27 million active uh, data sets that you can play around with and ITV turn up and say, well, I've got half a billion. So how that's not going to work. It's actually, well, no, where do we match and where do, don't we match? And where we match, what does that tell us? And where we don't match, what does that tell us still? And how do we, and how do we make those non-matches information that we can use to the betterment of our services? There's obviously a lot of changes happening in the space, um, a lot of announcements being made, and we're definitely shifting away from third-party cookies. If you were to look through a crystal ball in five years' time what would you want the, the space to look like? What would you want the industry, where would you want the industry to be at? I'm going to take this from two perspectives. Please do. I'm going to take it from a marketing, advertising, media owner perspective. And then I'm actually going to take it from a consumer perspective and me as an individual and what I see. So I think the industry is going to continue over the next five to 10 years chasing that unicorn of total personalization and proof of conversion because marketeers that they are seeking ever greater efficiencies uh, they want to prove their ROI uh, and actually that's gone beyond the internet now you know, there's connected TV out of home experiences or even linear TV is deploying some form of programmatic within its media mix and we'll be using data to help make those decisions and inform media buys. So some of it, which from a marketing perspective will be totally unachievable and in some ways eminently sensible and achievable. So I guess it's going to be the constant chase for that pure conversion and proof it's working. Um, and so therefore, there's going to be a healthy mix of data and enrichment that's going to help drive decision making. Uh, but I think actually what that's going to do is effectively push for greater creativity, because if everyone's technology is the best, then how else are you going to differentiate? And I think creativity will be part and parcel of that. So t the technology will end up being effectively a byproduct of that creativity. But what I hope from the industry and what I hope we do over the, not just in the fi next five, 10 years, I, I hope we do in the next five, 10 minutes, uh, is that we, so we solve the ethical side to this and to data and to information. Because we've seen over the last few years, misinformation, inappropriate targeting, political manipulation, which has created an incredibly dangerous narrative. And actually, I'm very fearful of how we've effectively, in some ways, used ad tech to empower manipulation of information that we then put in front of people who then start, you know, uprisings, um, 
going to the capital because they believe a vote has been stolen from them to, uh, you know, whether you voted for or against it, you created a narrative about Brexit, which was based around misinformation, etc. And I think that that is the biggest thing that we need to resolve when it comes to identity, because we are using identity or that digital footprint that um, to, to understand how we can trigger and manipulate people into a certain type of thinking. And no greater evidence of that is uh, I'm an addict of podcasts and I listen to um, Americast, which is on the BBC, and they have a um, journalist who's responsible for understanding data and manipulation and misinformation. And her name is Misinformation. And it's brilliant. And what she's done is she's created five different personas to see what happens with those personas, what information is put in front of them, so, and how aggressive certain lines of thinking are pushed in front of them. Identity is being used to deliver that sort of execution. So what I hope is we solve that. And I think that that's going to take great political pressure as well as people pressure to make that change. Frankly, if we can solve it in the ad industry, we can certainly solve it within the wider community. And in effect, we need to force regulation. Um, we don't have a universal language when it comes to regulation. We're still trying to figure it out. One minute it's GDPR, TCF2. Suddenly we don't like TCF2. My God, the number of arguments I've had with our legal team and our data, uh, data people who all think that we're all going to hell in a handbasket because we dared to put TCF2 on our C, uh, CMP um, just goes to show the ambiguity of the language and the guidance that we have with people's data. And the byproduct is through that ambiguity, the danger for businesses are that they get heavily penalized if they get it wrong. So it's understandable there's that scrutiny. But if we don't have a universal language that allows us to not only navigate the commercial world, but also the editorial and political world with it, then yeah, this is only set to continue. So I hope from a ethical perspective, this is actually where our primary goal should be with identity. Thank you for that answer. We're reaching the end of our time together. Is there anything that you've not mentioned that you'd want to add at this stage? Oh, loads. <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you, Max. I've bored you already. And um, I'm an illustrious company, so I don't want to let the side down. Um, it's been a, a pleasure talking. We use this podcast um, as a means to introducing the industry to individuals and celebrating those individuals, individuals that have pioneered new ways to use data to deliver better customer experiences. When you yourself look at people that you admire within the industry, you mentioned a few names of people that you've worked with across your career. Is there anyone that you'd recommend or nominate for us to interview in an upcoming podcast? Actually, I really like that question. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I was initially going to say you should speak to my good friend, Andy McNabb, not the, uh, SAS book um, uh, writer, uh, but actually a veteran of the advertising industry, hugely experienced, been there, seen it, done it, currently very senior within a business called Fanplayer, all about data, but also old school sales. And the guy's um, a legend. Um, but actually, I think for the podcast, we should look beyond people who are in the industry, but actually those people who are on the fringes of it, or actually inform policy and decision. So obviously I went on a bit of a political bent earlier and I'm going to go back on one. And I actually, who knows who is going to be our next secretary uh, uh, for digital culture, media and sport. Currently it's Michelle Donnellan, um, but it could be anybody because obviously Sunak has just been voted in today and we are about to find out what his cabinet looks like. But I would urge you to speak to them because they are actually going to be the custodians of how our industry operates and they're the ones that can apply that political pressure about what uh, that we discussed but also i would then go and get the opinion of the shadow secretary for digital culture and media and sport 
and that's Lucy Powell. And I'd uh, do a second interview with them and see where the differences lie. What do they see as identity and what do they see as the biggest challenge they see that's ahead of them? And that's what I would do. Thank you for that recommendation. I'll have a I'll have a chat with the team and, and see what we can do, see what we can arrange. Dunstan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Identity Architects and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Max. You take care. Thanks again to Dunstan for joining us for this episode. As a gamer myself, I found this a fascinating episode and it was great to hear from Dunstan how EFG plans on using its first party data to drive more value for its players while remaining player first in everything they do. All that leaves for me to do is remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.